I think Rosalind Franklin is an example of someone that we're now starting to say, no, this was her contribution. She did this. Like, let's start she giving her, her place that. in history. Yeah. Welcome back to Enraged Listeners. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Anna. We have some guests today. We do have guests today that I'm super excited about in a different time zone. <laughs> Welcome to our guests. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, I'm Nick Lemmer. I'm Ellie Viza. We're a part of the Everyday Dissection podcast, kind of delving into fun scientific stories from a, a more progressive point of view, trying to delve into the the history, but also the actual mechanics of, of certain scientific aspects. I'm the dumb, dumb layman, every man. You're not dumb. I, Nick, I want to like it. For, <laughs> but for in kind of the conceit of the show, I'm, I'm there to ask the questions and have you, the experts, sort of lay things out in a, in a easier to understand way with kind of the two of us meeting in the middle, I'd say. I feel like meeting in the middle is, is a good place. And we're, we're going to construct jokes about science and try to make you laugh. But also, hopefully, you learn some cool science fun facts that you can take with you. That is so cool. And you're not dumb. <laughs> and the, what I'm really excited about, I don't know science either. I don't know... You were just talking. I have no idea what you were talking about, but I like pretended <laughs> like I, I was like, I was like, I know that book. That's cool. But I really don't know what know. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I know what a lamprey is. <laughs> I'm like double helix. Totally. <laughs> it's a lot about curiosity, sort of like exploring the world, but also trying to like discover the, I don't want to say hidden truths because it always sounds like very cliche, but it's like the actual like scientific explanations for stuff and not like the sensational stuff that often gets reported in, in media places sometimes. We also found like just by doing research, we find all this crazy stuff that we yeah. never expected. I was like, oh, we're just doing a casual episode on something that I thought was really simple. And then I started to do research and I'm like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. there's so much here. And I had no idea. And even, even weird things like John D who we thought would be like a really fun kind of like, oh, look at this guy who was doing weird experiments and was calling it magic. And it's like, oh, this dude is like almost directly for the rise of like British imperialism and like the British empire can directly be related to a lot of the ideas he was kind of propagating at the time. Yeah, he, for, so John D is this like mathematician who is responsible for like the cartographic tools that got uh, England across the Atlantic, but he also did seances for the queen and like made up a language for the angels. And like, he was both of these things. So mm -hmm. he's a very strange figure. Um, yeah. So my takeaway <laughs> from that, which proves my own experience is that math is a lie and it's magic. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was what I took away from it. And Ellie sort of fought me on that, but I guess that's one of the disagreements. In our show. They have imaginary numbers and she's like, right, but that's not what that means. <laughs> She's like, is the only scientist in this whole group I'm here to tell you that math is real, first of all, and it's magic. It can be real and magic. I think that's absolutely. I think part of what makes math cool is that it's like discovering, yeah, the secrets of the universe and you're unlocking all these puzzles and patterns that, you know, you wouldn't find any other way. That's why I think math is cool. Math is cool. Math is super cool. Thank I feel like in another life, I was like a mathematician. 
You just got to like bond there. You're like numbers. I get that. I was like really obsessed with math when I was younger. And it's interesting because we just did a podcast on STEM and women in STEM. And a part of me is like, would I have been a mathematician if people encouraged me? I don't know. Yes. And then I'm like, if I was a mathematician, like, what would I be doing with my life? <laughs> what a mathematician. You lamprey, apparently. <laughs> are you, but you're, are you a mathematician? Is that? I'm a geneticist. I do a lot of math. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big components of my job is like coding and doing computational work. Mm. But so I'm cool. technically a biologist, not a, not a mathematician. A biologist who has to use math every day there's so much math in biology people think that it's the it's the not math science it's the most math it's just hidden i have so many questions that we don't have time for today because i want to know a lot about experiments but that's a separate topic what are we going to talk about today as the non-science person one of the non-science persons what is well first of all i have a question for both of you and for Caitlin, is science a feminist, intersectional feminist issue? Yes. Yeah, it, yeah, it has to be. I think most things nowadays are like pushing to a more feminist slant just because I guess it sucks saying this as the man, but you can feel women kind of reaching forward and trying to reclaim the power that they've been denied for so long. Get that. <laughs> <laughs> I think any, any fields when it becomes more intersectional becomes stronger. And so I think that the sciences will be better as more people are allowed to be mm-hmm. scientists and are allowed to push into our field and make these discoveries. I think, mm-hmm. I think we're at some really cool points and we're about to discover some really cool stuff as scientists. And it's really exciting that um, we're also entering a field that is more diverse. There are more points of view Mm -hmm. than ever. And I do think that that is slower than I want it to, but it is going forward. Yeah. Um, When I feel like what I've heard you all saying now and when we chatted before is that science is already intersectional, right? And I feel like that's a part of what we're talking about today is like, yes, it needs to be better. And it's always been intersectional. It's just who actually got recognition for what was done. Absolutely. Something we end up talking about a lot in the podcast is when we're doing our research, I frequently find people who were not credited, Mm -hmm. but have all of these amazing discoveries. So I think about people like Mary Anning, who was the first person to discover a full dinosaur skeleton. And she just spent her whole life digging up fossils and just selling them to museums where men would then take credit Mm -hmm. for discovering dinosaurs that she dug up. And she just kind of took her money and lived her life and respect. Um, I think it's, it's it's, it's almost a sad story because I think she knew that was the most she could achieve in some way where she's doing like literally the backbreaking labor, but because of the society that it was 1820s, I think when she was discovering this and, you know, most yeah. men aren't going to be saying, oh, yeah, no, this this like nice lady discovered a bunch of bones out in Sweden or whatever. It's going to be, no, I alone with my big, strong, manly hands dug this bone from the ground and ripped it from the earth and look at how smart I am for discovering it. You Does know, it make you ever rage out? That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. I'm like, I am not a scientist, but just as a person, I am personally feeling rage. So I like 
Ellie, yeah. <laughs> what is your life so, like? <laughs> I will say I, I work in a lab with uh, a lot of times, m- mostly men. Um, they're all lovely. I'm just going to start with that. Um, <laughs> none of them are bad people, but I totally, it was like really nice when there was another female grad student. Cause we would just be sitting in meetings and you just had that look across the table when someone said something and you were just like, not today. <laughs> I'm just going to sip my coffee, but not today. There's all these little things. And then you see that as a systemic issue. Mm-hmm. And then it, it does totally make me rage. And we, I wanted to talk today about, we just released an episode mm-hmm. about this, my personal most angry science rant. And that is the story of the discovery of the structure of DNA, which is credited to James Watson and Francis Crick, who I've been calling the Emperor Palpatine of genetics. <laughs> I'm like, like, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds terrible. <laughs> like, okay, well, what I want to say, Ellie, just because you know, because if you know, you know, Caitlin and I started our relationship really with those looks, those rage looks. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And then it grew into a lot more rage rants, rage mm-hmm. texts. And just general rage lifestyle, which you have to have, right? So let's talk about DNA. Because when you say that, I think about skin flakes. And I don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) Because that's what I assume. That's what I assume DNA is. I like... I dream of like little things circling inside of me because I've got like that picture of like the double helix and I'm like, mm-hmm. it's this neon thing, <laughs> two different colors, clearly, <laughs> and it's just circling. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, <laughs> so it is, I, DNA, the way that I ex- explain it, especially when I'm like working with, with students is DNA is the blueprint for life. So it is in every single cell in our body, all the way right in the middle in the nucleus. And it is these twirls of double helixes. And it is the code for what your body looks like, how your body is constructed. What do your cells do? All of that is coded in this double helix. And it's it's really an incredible molecule. Um, like I studied like the, it, so. <laughs> it's like but. the body's computer programming. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the underlying code. Yeah. 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 It's a great way to put it. (laughs) But if we were supposed to hear it differently, how would we hear it in a normal way? Uh, I would would translate it to it's what makes us who we are. It's sort of the, the fundamental like blocks that make each person kind of that gets passed down from our entire family's like lineage, basically sort of Mm -hmm. the structure that makes up life. And we, we go into a little more detail in the podcast, but I think we, we focus especially on the story of the people who kind of were, were putting in the, the legwork to discovering the double helix and putting a spotlight on, uh, you know, trying to make sure that everyone knows that Watson and Crick were these two people who had this very nice woman working in the exact same college as them, whose entire note sheets they stole in the middle of the night. That is so rude. It's right? Not great. And so it's like, there's a lot of controversy about 
how much they stole her stuff. Mm -hmm. But I've read now read all of James Watson's take. He has a a full novel about how he discovered the double helix. And in it, he admits to stealing her notes. Mm -hmm. Like it's in there. He's like, he's like, oh yeah, I took, he called her Rosie. And, and her name is Dr. Franklin. You're like, like he gross. Calls her Rosie. And like in her, and... the entirety of his book, everyone else gets like, you know, Francis or the other first names, doctors. Rosie was like repeatedly the only name he called her throughout the book. And it's, it's like, it, I only read a couple passages, but it feels condescending every single time. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. That is so rude. It right? totally reminds me of that New York Times article that came out where they were like talking about Biden's wife who yes. is a doctor and like they were just like oh that's cute <laughs> like yeah. uh, you want to hear the feminist rage that came out of the the academic community when that article came out so oh my gosh <laughs> i'm dying i am just gonna say before i say it that i absolutely hate this thing but i feel like it's applicable to what we're talking about in a way that like like taking back the saying for ourselves where people say like behind every like good man is a strong woman or something like that something mm -hmm. along those lines right but I think it's really applicable when we're looking at the stuff that you all are talking about where we've got all of these like scientists and people who are taking credit and behind them are all these people that actually like did the things <laughs> And I just think it's really interesting that like people use that language, but I don't think that like the real meaning or weight of it is, mm -hmm. is there when people use it. But I think if we're really viewing it through the lens of what we're talking about, it's like, yeah, there's a bunch of people behind the ones who took credit for the work right. that was done <laughs> and like nobody's recognizing them. Exactly. It's definitely meant as like an aspirational, like, no, there, you've always got people in your corner. But when you look at the history, it's like, no, there's a bunch of people who did most of the work, but the, the person who was most charismatic and deemed like culturally the person to, to like focus on is the yeah. person who ends up becoming well known. So tell us how amazing Rosalind Franklin is. Just let's yeah. hear it. Absolutely. <laughs> Rosalind Franklin was... A, a PhD and what she studied is called x-ray crystallography. So it was a way of taking pic, I know, right? It's a way of taking pictures <laughs> of molecules. So that's what she was trying to do is you would try to isolate all of these different compounds and then take pictures of them. And it's really hard. Especially is, with the technology they had back then. Yeah, so think about the, the technology they had in the 50s. And she was trying to use, basically you're bouncing x-rays off of molecules and trying to capture that in an image. It's great. It is very technical, very difficult work. And she is described as someone that was super hardworking, was really passionate about what she did um, and was very focused. Like that's kind of like, and part of what's hard is that she is framed a lot by her male colleagues. And so it's hard to find not sexist accounts about how she was. There's a movie I watched in high school that we're going to try and find and, and make fun of where it, it features Watson and Crick as like the main people and them working diligently into the night. And I, I re-looked it up. She's like the third or fourth build character. She's barely mentioned in the plot summary. And it's one of those. It's like, really? Like, we know, we can look at the actual records. Like she is in, even in the, the what they submitted for the, the double helix, like most of her work is what they're using to kind of prove the structure. And she's still, even in a movie, like a TV movie with Jeff Goldblum, she's just like this third character who barely gets any screen time from my memory. 
right? And so <laughs> they like name the actor. You're like, the only movie. person worth watching. Like, watch it for Jeff Goldblum, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. So Rosalind, yeah, she was this incredible scientist, and she took the picture of the double helix. You can look it up online. There's this. They, they, I feel like I've seen that picture many, many times of like, you can see the twirls of the double helix in the picture. It was the first time anyone had actually gotten a picture of the structure. And that was the picture that Watson and Crick got a hold of through one of her colleagues who eventually shared the Nobel prize with them. And Rosalind Franklin did not get the Nobel prize. And they which is, took her pictures. Which I'm is, raging think, out. I'm <laughs> raging out. Rage away. Well, well, and it's a part of what we talked about when we first had the conversation about doing this together, where it's not just the credit, it's mm -hmm. like the wealth and the the long-term impact of not having that credited to you is like insane. Yeah. Just to think about like a Nobel prize, like mm -hmm. this person discovered this thing and they deserve the Nobel prize, but other people got it and like, she yeah. went on with her life. I also think this is frustrating. And this goes to Caitlin, your point around like women tend to be the supporting characters and Nick to your point, right? Which is like the work, the labor, the idea doesn't matter for women because they're just the supporter to making this grand thing happen. When in reality, if we really took a look at all of the ways that women and people of color have contributed in leading science, imagine the world we would live in if I saw women and people of color as a young person in posters, we like talked about these accomplishments. Imagine the generational impact that would have had, yet we continue to be in a space where women are supporting men who get the credit. No. And they, I mean, the, the end of the, the tragedy of Rosalind Franklin is that she passed away from cancer about a year after the paper came out and before they got their Nobel prize. And so, cause she was working with x-rays and so she got cancer and died very mm -hmm. young. And that's literally putting her body on the line to get this research and getting like, screwed out of even like posthumous recognition yeah and like and we talked about even in our episode watson because he got this nice fancy nobel prize kind of sets him off for life until he makes his own mistakes and screws them up but like he was able to get tenure at, at harvard or something and like basically off work he didn't do he was able to live pretty comfortably until he proved himself to be a racist old asshole and what are you gonna do yeah he, he gets his come up and like 50 years later but it's like um, way too late. It is. <laughs> and he still gets an, he still gets to say that he has a Nobel Prize, mm -hmm. like that he, yeah. he can't take that away from him. That's so crazy. Mm -hmm. And it just, I mean, it makes me think about, and this has popped up in a few different episodes of ours, talking about COVID and the vaccine and the last one that we had in STEM, just the different ways that science has used the bodies of people of color and mm -hmm. women to progress the research that's being done and then not acknowledging the a harm that they've done and b lack of any sort of credit <laughs> for mm -hmm. 
for things that have happened, like with Rosalind Franklin, mm -hmm. where it's like she sacrificed her body in order to discover this thing and then had absolutely no credit for any of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we can start as a society, you know, deconstructing that and starting giving that, starting to give that credit back. Mm -hmm. And I think Rosalind Franklin is an example of someone that we're now starting to say, no, this was her contribution. She did this. Like, let's start she giving her, her that. place in history. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I was also just thinking? Can I just say this? It's not related, but it is because it's science related. And we're going to talk about Dr. Franklin ongoing. But what is this whole thing with soft sciences? Because that's rude. Because we talk about the social sciences, which are largely women gender expansive, people of color dominated. And those are quote unquote, the soft sciences, despite like rigorous research, peer reviewed journals, but that's not real science because real science is this like hard science that's very mathematical that has like traditionally excluded women and people of color. But this other science is soft science. Does that mm. make sense? Yes. I feel like I have never liked the distinction soft science and hard science. It doesn't make any sense. I it's, think it's science. It's all science. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're studying I, all science is, is looking at the world around you and asking questions like at its core, that's all science is. And if you're doing that, then you're a scientist and like, it doesn't I'm really matter what your question is. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Caitlin and Nick, we're scientists. You guys, we're we scientists. did it. We're you doing did. it. All it took was one podcast. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I mean, that's like, I, that I, I truly believe that. I do think that everyone uses mm -hmm. the way that we think about the world as scientists. That's something that's applicable all the time. You don't have to write a peer reviewed paper to do science. And I feel like limiting science to just publications and academia mm -hmm. or a government job where you're, you know, actively studying science that's silly. Like it's gatekeeping. Like, like so many things, I think we're seeing more and more, like there's just a bunch of like, this is the way it was in the past. It's the way I grew up with it. And God damn it. It's the way we're going to end it. And it's like, no, like sometimes things need to change. You need to be more inclusive, bring in new, fresher ideas. And like, that's going to open up a world of possibilities and like make everything, including science better. Cause you're getting this influx of different ideas and perspectives, but the old guard just don't like that, clearly. Very true. And we had a guest on here, Pete, who we love, who was in school and taught by Angela Davis, Dr. Angela Davis, who's this like civil rights icon, hero. You're going to tell me Angela Davis is a soft scientist? Right. No. Like that is a life-changing icon for folks. Mm -hmm. Right. And I love that point, Nick, around gatekeeping, because that's what it really is. It's like science is for this certain group who make a certain contribution and everybody else who's questioning and changing systems doesn't count as science because mm -hmm. it's this like soft touch in society when really there are huge impacts. I mean, I would say in many ways, Dr. Angela Davis has had like just as much of an impact on our world as somebody like a Rosalind Franklin, just in, you know, in different types of ways. But again, it's one of those, 
you're not going to be taught about either of those figures in school at all, despite like the enormous amounts of impact that they have left and are leaving on the world we live in. But like, why is that? Why aren't we taught about those people in school? Biases in America, <laughs> most, most school books come from Texas and has to be approved by the Texas Board of Education, which is uh, a whole mess. Yeah. Wait, and- Coming from you. Yeah, oh, you don't know? Oh, and this, this I'm not yeah. even an expert, but my, my, my father was a professor and he, he kind of let me on early on. I don't know the exact percentages, but most American textbooks from like elementary to like high school up are made and written in Texas. And because it's written in that state, they have to meet the requirements of the state of Texas, which is maybe not going to be super kind to civil rights leaders or to more progressive ideology or to women and it's, it trickles down and kind of becomes like, even up here in Michigan, like we're getting these like Texas Instruments school books and I'll, I'll read stuff in that, that years later I'll be like, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't true at all. I don't know why my history book spelled it out for me. Like Martin Luther King Jr. was like a socialist. I don't know why that's not being brought up in every single chapter on him and like talking about what he believed and how he thought it was a good way to push forward the progressive causes of civil rights, but also kind of bring up the impoverished folks and like that's just something Texas is not going to want to talk about. I'm like that's a whole episode. We need to talk about textbooks. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's just one of those things there's there's a lot kind of that I think goes under noticed in the American system because it's quote-unquote the norm it's what we're used yeah. to and it things like that sometimes just go unquestioned until somebody actually has the courage to look at the actual history and go, hey, uh, I don't think this is right. Yeah, and I think we have to talk about how gross academia is because it really is. And I love school, right? I have a graduate degree. School is my favorite time of my life. I love it. But then you look at all of those super gross structures that continue to advance racism and capitalism through this lens of like, here's this gatekeeping that only certain people get to be a part of. And then I was just thinking, Nick, when you were saying that Dr. Cornell West was denied tenure at Harvard recently. And it's like, excuse me, excuse me. I'm going to deny Cornell. Like that's insane. That is insane. Right? So it's this bigger scheme that we're all buying into, even though it's not representative of our social consciousness and all the while someone like, Dr. Rosalind Franklin doesn't get the credit until people start being like, what the hell? Well, even going back to the systems, one of the things we touch on, because Watson was allowed tenure at Harvard, he was in charge of like the hiring and firings. And guess what? When you look at his staff, it was mostly white dudes because turns out that dude who was racist and sexist wasn't going to hire anybody who didn't look like him. Right. And now he has this lab and this legacy, and this is the case, you know, of anyone that runs a lab Mm. for 40 years, you're going to have, you know, probably over a hundred students throughout your tenure that you all, you one-on-one mentored these people and they are going to be carrying on your legacy in academia. So when you have these these, you know, these people in positions of power, it has mm-hmm. a huge downstream impact. It's, and it's one of those, I'm sure in their own right, most of them are probably pretty good scientists. They wouldn't have been able to get to Harvard if they wouldn't. But there's a lot of people who didn't look like them who were not allowed that opportunity were never going to be given that chance, especially in those times. And it's like, 
when you think about like the thousands, if not millions of students who just weren't given a chance at a proper education, whether because of their race, their sex, their income, like however much like money their parents are making, it, it's truly staggering. Like we've lost out on like arguably some of our best and brightest just because they were not afforded the opportunities. So much going on right now in my head. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> Well, it's just, I mean, I think it's crazy to like look at Ivy League schools and just like historically how racist and sexist they've been. Mm -hmm. And then even just thinking about, um, why can't I think of the name of it? You're a scientist. You're a scientist. All right. Where are you going? It's not not equal opportunity. That's for employment. It's Mm -hmm. for schools. Oh, um, affirmative action yes 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 yeah. <laughs> like why can't i think of the words i have the exact same blank you did there yeah but if you think of affirmative action and just like the even the fact that there's been controversy over it and then just like knowing the entire history of how like this system has created like these impossibilities for folks to actually have opportunity and then to have people question affirmative action and trying to make change to increase representation in schools it's just like it's mind-boggling that Mm -hmm. people wouldn't see how big of an impact this legacy of white men has had on not just the school system but as our, our society as a whole because if we don't have people doing the work like you guys are saying and creating new things and inventing <laughs> solutions to problems that are coming from different backgrounds like we're it's, missing everything it's so much bigger than affirmative action too because all affirmative action is doing is getting people in the door mm-hmm. and yeah. now you have this institution institution that definitely works against you mm-hmm. and we haven't fixed any of that so you get into right. these ivy league or these prestigious schools and now you're in this super toxic academic mm-hmm. environment that was not built for you and there's a reason that even though people are getting their foot in the door why would you want to stay? Like it's, it is so hard to stay and keep continuing in this education when you know, in that environment that like, there's a good proportion of people that just don't want you there. And it's really hard to fight all of that and say, no, I want my education. I still want to do this. I mean, any system built on like patriarchy or white supremacy, like any suppressing like that, the, the, the unfortunate reality is when your system is built like that, it, feels like the norm. And so there's so many people who I think can live in denial and will just be like, I'm sure like everyone has probably encountered somebody who's just like, well, I'm not struggling like that though. So I don't think that that sort of struggle exists. And it's like, well, that's your own subjective experience. You're not looking at the actual institutions and you're not like taking into account the stories of the people who are actually being affected by this. And it's, it's probably one of the, the biggest strengths white supremacy has, unfortunately, is it feels so prevalent and it feels so ingrained in our culture in many ways. It's like, look at the science, <laughs> look at the studies, <laughs> then you would know. <laughs> I mean, we, we've said it today, but like you can look at, there's a bunch of studies that when they're done by more diverse groups of people, it tends to reflect a more accurate representation of the world and the data because mm-hmm. you're getting it from these different point of views and not like a bunch of like white dudes who all grew up in Boston at the same time. So have the exact same experiences and influences. So they're going to agree with the exact same conclusion. I love it. How Nick was like, 
I'm a dum-dum and I don't know anything about science. And then he's like, I actually have like all these facts. I know. I was like just sitting here like, um, you know so much about science. standard really low and that way I feel a lot more impressed when you say like $2 words. Yeah. You're strapping the big words out there. <laughs> well, there is so much that we could talk about because I also was just thinking about the, do you remember that like, college ad- admission scam that just yeah. happened yeah. Um, we don't even have time to get into that because that's a whole other thing that we should talk about but what do we need to know about dr rosalind franklin i feel like we covered kind of a lot yeah. of the i mean this name. feels like a cheap plug for our podcast right now go listen to an everyday dissection <laughs> but we, we delve into it but no she she did a lot of like really interesting stuff and like we said laid the groundwork for discovering like the foundations of what makes us. And she just got overwritten and overlooked for years and years. And I feel like in in your rage, when you're thinking about Dr. Franklin, when you're upset about this, like go Google and find more, mm-hmm. you know, women and women of color that have been outwritten of different histories. Like look at um, the even... scientists from the movie Hidden Figures. Yes. And you can look at the legacy of computer science and that for a long time, it was considered like the girl mm-hmm. science to do the math and do coding. And then white men decided, wait, no, we want to do this. Oh, no. And then just pushed women out of that field. And now it's male dominated. And it's so hard as a woman to like function in a coding world. There was this complete flip that but happened and there's so much erasure there. Sheldon Cooper and- did let them use the same bathrooms eventually. So that sounds like a <laughs> You're like, lining of the movie. (laughs) I I like that movie, but the fact that that was like the emotional crux, I was always just like, is this really the win? I feel like there's a lot more they can achieve before a victory. Well, the the person that we had on from Girls Inc. that was talking about STEM, she was like, you know, Hidden Figures is like, it's great that it made it out there, but it's also like, the question is like, why is that so groundbreaking, right? Like, and similar to what you all are saying, like that the whole, the storyline actually had a lot more to do with the white man that was in there than mm-hmm. it should have. Like yeah. where it's like, it's amazing that like this movie is out and like it will educate people who maybe are like very uninformed. It should be an inspiration or... to, to young girls who want to get into science. Yeah. Nice if that was the actual framing of the movie. Yeah. And what I would encourage people to do is after you see that movie, go actually research the women that that story is based on and learn about them and learn about their legacy in the field. And like, cause I feel like there was a better way to make that movie, but you still get those names out there and we can start telling their stories the way that we can tell Rosalind Franklin stories and start reclaiming some of that scientific history that we really need. You're like, go be a scientist and do research on these people. Basically, my job is to Google really good. So, <laughs> so that's your advice for most people. Just do a quick Google, go to the second page, you'll find some good information. I know, Hannah and I say that all the time. We're like, uh, we learned our jobs from Google. So <laughs> if everybody else could just Google your job. <laughs> What do people think science and coding is? (laughs) It's just what somebody else said about that five years ago. And you're like, oh, maybe that still works. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) that's it. But also, Ellie, I'm a therapist. Caitlin's a therapist. I'm not trying to therapize you. But 
what do you have to deal with in your work, in your education? Are you okay? And how can people be better? Am I okay? That's a really hard Mm. question. Um, (laughs) I, I feel like I am very happy right now. I'm finishing up my degree in my lab. I've worked there for four years. My lab is intense, but everyone there is like really supportive and constructive. And I appreciate how lucky I am. Um, this is my, my fourth lab and it is by far the best one that I have been a part of. Uh, and I'm going to be moving to Canada to join a new lab. And I'm just hoping that they are as awesome so far. They seem great. And I have so much hope, and I think it's going to be amazing. Um, but for me, I, so I'm a woman, I'm also queer and I also have, um, some intellectual mental health things and I have autism. And so I have a lot of, I feel like I get a lot of intersectional pressure one to be representative because it's like, I'm like, oh, I'm the only one that has this great. I'm so happy I'm here. And (laughs) so there's this kind of this mixture of like feeling like, even though I know I'm not the first, it kind of feels like you're among the few still. Um, And that can just be hard. Like the imposter syndrome is really hard. And I'm happy that there are other women that are grad students in my department that we can kind of band together and lean on each other. And how many grad students, like female grad students do you work with? I'm actually not even sure I know. uh, In my lab, I am the only woman Mm -hmm. out of four right now. But in my department, there are several women that I, I work with, not like as close coworkers, but like as like a right. cohort, we work on different projects. And so we just kind of, You're it's more like a moral chain. support. Sure. Yeah. More of like a moral support. We live close to each other. You know, it's all good. Um, but I feel like I, I'm okay, <laughs> but it, academia is very difficult. And I feel like with every layer of like marginalized community that you have, there's all of these invisible barriers and I, I have never had a mentor that has shared those barriers. So I do think a lot of what's happened to me is that although my mentors are great people, there's a lot of education that happens on my part where I'm like, oh, well, this is like a systemic thing. Oh, you have no idea what I'm talking about. All right, let's, let's dive into this. I know it's our weekly meeting, but okay, today we're talking about homophobia at conferences. And so I feel like a lot of what happens in academia in terms of just the regular basis stuff is that burden consistent burden of education um, on a lot of different fronts. Which I think, Nick, you were kind of referencing around this unpaid, unacknowledged labor around Mm -hmm. folks who don't have a lot of representation in fields where it's like the amount of work ongoing that it takes Mm -hmm. to Ellie, educate those around you, identify it, be like, am I going to have to spend the like an hour appointment I have today on not my learning, but like supporting your learning around homophobia. And I mean, I think that's a lot. And, you know, as a woman in a field that is dominated by women, but the leadership necessarily is not, it's like, oh, what, which piece of the like pile of BS do I want to address today? (laughs) And I kind of are always in that place around like, Okay. So I'm like texting Caitlin in the morning. I'm like, okay, so here's the like 10 things that I'm like raging. Which of this (laughs) is the thing I need to do today? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's a lot, you pick your battles so much. You're like, I'm, I'm going to let this one go today. And it's like, I think people don't realize is when you're actually going to say something that whatever they said was really bad. 
and you let 20 things go already. And it's like, okay, yep. I can't let that one go. I Mm. literally can't. Yep. And now we have to talk about it. Well, what would you say just in, as we're like kind of coming up, running out of time, what would you say to the other women and folks who are less represented in the sciences to give them a glimmer of hope out there? (laughs) Watching figures. No. (laughs) I mean, do that. Um, I, for me, it comes back to, even though I think it can be hard to find other people that you identify with, that they're absolutely out there and that you're not by yourself and that it's only gonna get better because you can see that every cohort of grad students that comes through is more diverse. You have more people, you you can find your squad. And I I honestly think that's one of the coolest parts of grad school is as you go through, you slowly filter in, you have people who are interested in so many things that you're also interested in. I have found it easier to make friends than I ever had in my life. And it's amazing because I'm not good at making friends, but oh my gosh. And so you, you go into grad school and it's really scary. It's intimidating and it's hard, but you love what you're doing. And there are people around you who share that passion that you can just, you know, gas each other up and keep going. And you know what? Sometimes that coffee is we're going to complain about our advisors today. At other times, it's going to be, oh, my gosh, I found this thing. I'm so excited about my project. But you'll have that group of people to kind of carry you through the hard parts and enjoy the good parts with you. I love that. I love that. And I agree. I've met some of my lifelong friends in grad school. And when you said gas each other up, I was like, that's a science term. (laughs) (laughs) I've never thought of it that way, but yeah. I was like, that's science. And Nick, for, for you, Nick, what do you, how do you support other folks learning how to be allies and, or just better people in the realm of discovering and acknowledging the truth? It's, I don't want to say it's tough, but I think being an ally puts you in this position where like the number of arguments I've gotten into with like folks at work or just like random people on the street where it's like, I, I, I feel like the, the privilege of being a white male is I have the ability to go up to other white dudes and say, stop being an idiot. You're being dumb. Whether they listen to me is not in my control whatsoever, but I feel like I have a lot more flexibility to kind of reprimand people and kind of educate them and say, look, I I know you haven't been through this experience. I know you haven't like done the listening, done the work, but you need to understand the only reason I'm coming up here to say, stop saying that sexist, racist, homophobic, whatever stuff is because I know you're hurting people. You might not be intending to. And if you are, then I need to like, make sure you know that you are a scummy person and that is going to be reflected in how people treat you. Because you're, you're not going to be getting it from people who are marginalized and might be scared to tell you this. So it, it feels like my position sometimes is to kind of go to the people who aren't going to listen to the marginalized groups and say, you're not acting right. You best step back. Stop it. Stop also, it. Every once in a while, like fight a white guy for me. I appreciate that. Yes. To be like, nope, he's too much. Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, even you've seen it just with like Corona and stuff like this. I got into an, a legit argument with the guy at Costco because I pointed to my nose because he wasn't doing that. And he got up and started screaming at me. I just kind of was like, 
I'm not telling you again and waited until like the Costco employees kind of pulled him away from me just because I was like, I'm not, I'm not dealing with your ignorance. I'm going to wait for like you to understand you're messing up on this one. And I'm going to make sure you realize that the rest of the world thinks you're being an idiot here. Next, like check out my viral video of it. <laughs> no, I would, I would be so embarrassed. I would never want to see it recorded. I'd be so embarrassed. <laughs> I will yell at white men privately for you. <laughs> You heard it. Thing. You like, heard it here first, folks. If you need someone to fight a white man, Nick has totally got I would you. Definitely take money to fight white men. I could. I'd be okay with that. It's not a bad gig. <laughs> well, I am so glad that you all agreed to come on with us. And that you, I think you were the ones who actually reached out to us on Twitter. So thanks for that. Remember, we, uh, you guys sent us a DM with one of your episodes, and I was like, oh my gosh, they seem so cool. And so I, I <laughs> you guys back, and I was like, here's one of our episodes. Yeah. And then we started talking, and it was really cool. Um, and here we are. Yeah, it was great. So cool. Well, where can people find Everyday Dissection? Where can people find you? How? How do we, you know, get engagement both on the science side, but also really thinking about science is everywhere and science is for everyone? Yeah. So you can find us on Twitter at edissect. Perfect. I was looking it up. I, I got it. Remember. I got it. I got okay. this. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find our podcast at, you know, most places where you can get your podcast. Just uh, look up an everyday dissection full title, or you can find us at anchor.fm slash an everyday dissection. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Allele Ellie. So it's the word Allele, which is a genetics joke. And my name, Ellie, smush them together. That's my handle. And um, my Nick. Twitter is lemmer underscore Nick. Uh, I've been assured that that genetics joke kills with scientists. It does. I actually, I have seen it get big pops in the, the genetics community. I can only nod and laugh like in the beginning like, of the episode. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'll deal. I was like, I totally get this. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten compliments on that handle at conferences mm -hmm. from my colleague. I know it's a good joke. <laughs> a very small, nice corner. <laughs> Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thanks, listeners. Keep raging and stay safe.